Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I, I am realizing I have some verbal, t- verbal tics. I use the word again a lot. There's something to be said for seeing yourself. There's also something to be said for listening to yourself. So I'm going to try to course correct a little bit. Watching your tape is critical, man. Hi, everybody, and welcome to our show, Is It Serious?, a conversational podcast where we share our doctor knowledge without all the complex doctor talk. I'm Dr. Jean-Luc Neptune. My friends call me JL, and I'm an internal medicine physician based in New York City, where I practice addiction medicine at my company, Suntra Modern Recovery. In addition to being a physician, I'm also a healthcare entrepreneur and investor, and I'm passionate about making healthcare better for everyone. And I'm Dr. Mark Lewis. I'm a medical oncologist based in Salt Lake City, where I treat cancers of the gut. I'm also a patient myself living with a hereditary tumor syndrome. So I think about healthcare from both sides of the exam table. All right. So good afternoon, Mark. Uh, What's going on with you, buddy? I am living the dream, my friend, for real. I just got to tell (laughs) a patient with cancer that they were in remission. It is such a great feeling. I kind of wonder, like, Maybe the analog in your work uh, in, in addiction medicine is seeing someone thrive in, in recovery. Is that fair to say? It, it is. And it, it's funny because, you know, uh, their, you know, addiction is a medical specialty. We don't use the word remission. The, the term of art in the community is more around recovery. Um, mm-hmm. And typically we focus on day counts, right? You know, days sober. And, you know, it's n- just nothing better than talking to somebody who gives you a day count that's in the hundreds or in the years, yeah. you know? So, uh, you know, remission is definitely possible in addiction. We see it all the time. And, uh, you know, it is a really heartwarming aspect of being a provider to see somebody that you've treated who's doing well and is way better off than they were when they came to you. I know. It's so rewarding, right? It's kind of why we do what we do. That's very cool. I was like kind of exploring the parallels between your field and mine. That's very neat. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So our question of the day comes out of uh, some news that came out recently. So recently there was in the news a nurse in Tennessee who was convicted of criminally negligent homicide for a medication error that resulted in a patient's death. And, uh, you know, I think we wanted to talk a lot about that today because there are many different angles of this story. Uh, it's, a, it's actually a very sad story. Um, mm-hmm. And our question of the day is, do medical professionals really make errors in treating patients? So, Mark, you know, right off the bat, let's summarize the case because I think it'll be useful to organize our discussion today. And I'm realizing mm-hmm. that maybe not everybody has heard this uh, about this case so far. The person involved is a woman named Redonda Vaught. She is a 38-year-old nurse in Nashville, Tennessee, worked at uh, Vanderbilt University, and this is a case going back to 2017. She was involved in the care of a 75-year-old patient named Charlene Murphy, who came in with a subdural hematoma, a kind
kind of bleed in the brain. Mm -hmm. Charlene Murphy got the wrong medication, suffered a cardiac arrest, and was left brain dead. She eventually died. Oh. Nurse Vaught was originally indicted in 2019 for reckless homicide and impaired adult abuse. I didn't even know that was a, a possible charge. Uh, she pled not guilty, went to court. Uh, the hospital that she worked at, some of the staff actually testified against her. And she was recently convicted of a lesser charge with a jury that actually involved or included two health providers. Yeah. And that conviction could land her in prison for up to six years. Um, she's going to be sentenced in May 2022. And what's crazy about this, there were no consequences for anybody at the hospital or anyone else involved in this uh, sad case. So there's just so much to deal with here. A provider's mistake, a patient dying, a cover-up, scapegoating, a criminal conviction. And we wanted to talk about that today. I, I would make one caveat that, you know, we, we weren't involved in this case and we only know what's been reported, uh, but we'll do our best to stick to the facts and talk about what we know. So Mark, just as I, I, I throw that out there, had you heard about the case, because it is pretty recent, and what are your like, gut, gut feelings as you, as you first hear about this? Oh, man, this is just so sad from every angle, right? Yes, I had heard about it, both on the national news, and then, as you might imagine, it's caused, you know, to say the least, a stir uh, in the medical community, and I'll, I'll note in particular and understandably among our nursing colleagues. And mm -hmm. I, I think it would be wrong for, for me to pretend like I'm anything other than sick to my stomach, obviously for the poor patient and her family, but also for a system that could allow this to happen, by which I mean both the error and the penalty. Because, you know, one of the things we're trying to do on this pod jail is, <laughs> I hate to use the word exposed, but, but we really are exposing healthcare professionals, including doctors, but other people mm -hmm. in medicine as humans. Yep. And so I'll answer your question right off the top. Yes, we do make mistakes, but there are a lot of checks and balances in place that try to minimize those errors and certainly minimize their, their impact on patients. And, and finally, when I heard about this case, and we'll get into the exact scenario in which this medicine was given, I think about just how many demands there are on our attention span in a busy mm -hmm. clinical setting where we're making these split-second decisions. Again, this uh, I really first heard about the case just a couple of days ago. I mean, and there's such a mix of emotions, you know, yeah. one, a sense of sympathy and empathy for the provider involved because she's literally just been singled out mm -hmm. and just, you know, uh, left out to, to dry or left out to rot by her organization. The prosecutor said just some of the most awful things. We'll talk about that in a bit. And again, just having been in that environment, having been in a hospital environment, having been in a situation where it's literally just you making a decision, often with without support and just knowing that, you know, she, she may have just made a mistake. Um, it's just, it's just very, it's very disappointing. And, you know, again, it's just, it's a very emotional case. Yeah. Uh, but maybe why don't we start with the error itself? Cause I think that'll help. Mm -hmm. So in this case, the, the patient, Charlene Murphy, 75 years old, came in with a subdural hematoma. She was actually doing better and they were getting mm -hmm. ready to discharge her. She was getting a follow-up scan. So, you know, just checking her brain to make sure that the bleed hadn't come back and she was doing much better. She needed to get a follow-up scan. She probably got a CT scan, maybe an MRI. But as is often the case, the patient was anxious and was you know, afraid of maybe being cooped up in the scanner. So they decided to give the patient a medication called Versed. So Versed is the brand name of a benzodiazepine called midazolam. And it's very much in the same uh, class of medications as uh, Valium or Xanax. Mm -hmm. So it's a sedative, uh, you know, sort of an anxiolytic, as we call it, uh, you know, a medication that helps treat anxiety. Anxiety. But instead of getting 
Versed, she got a medication called Vecuronium. And uh, we'll, I'll, I'll let you tell us a little bit more about what Vecuronium is. But in any case, uh, you know, she got the wrong medicine. It sounds like the, the nurse missed some warnings. But again, it also sounds like there are some things that were broken in the system. So, Mark, why don't we talk a little bit about the medications? And, you know, is this a, did she make a big error or a little error? Well, so two things. Number one, I have to tell you, the number one reason I prescribe anti-anxiety medicine and anxiolytic is for patients to have scans. Mm -hmm. There's both the apprehension of, oh, what is the oncologist going to find? But there's the physical fear of going in these machines, some of which are quite claustrophobic, right? So what I'm getting at is I understand the underlying reason for the prescription. And then secondly, I I think we just need to say them again out loud, just how similar the drug names are. Versed and Vecuronium, both starting with a V. And you're right, they they are very different drugs. So I'm not going to minimize the the distance between what they do. One is an anti-anxiety agent. The other is a paralytic. So usually where Vecuronium is being used is by an anesthesiologist who is about to put a tube down your throat and put you on a mechanical Mm -hmm. ventilator. Because if you're paralyzed, Mm -hmm. that includes the muscles that keep you breathing. So that sort of explains why this was. We can't get around this. I mean, this was a catastrophic mistake and a mix-up. But you know what, JL? We did a whole pod about you know drug advertising. We even sort of made fun of the names. Mm-hmm. The drug names here are clearly partly to blame. And I actually have empathy. I think similarities breed potentially disastrous misunderstandings. I'm going to give you an example. Okay. So both of these drugs started with a V, right? right. So let's stand at the, let's, you know, kind of stay at the end of the alphabet. So I was prescribing once a drug in oncology called Xtandi. I'm going to spell it out. X-T-A-N-D-I. Mm-hmm. And the computer, knowing that there was going to be a need for disambiguation, prompted me. It said, hey, proceed with caution. Maybe confused with, and I'll give you the list, Xgiva, <laughs> Oxfigo, Zomeda, and Zytica. Oh those are all Jeez. X's and Z's. And, you know, it's an alphabet soup. All those drugs are very, very different. And, you know, they each have their own purpose. And there's really no crossover in what they do. So in the heat of the moment, uh, whether you're clicking a box in an electronic prescription uh, order set or, or however else you're giving the medicine, these mistakes can be they can be made. And to jump in there, I mean, too, I think people, there's this feeling, and I definitely saw this when I was training, I've seen this in other places, that human beings are machines, right? And that we don't make mistakes, that we don't get distracted. If Let's say she had been ordering the medication and somebody behind her is talking about Versed, 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 Mm -hmm. or maybe earlier in the day she had been prescribing Vecuronium, hadn't prescribed Versed or hadn't distributed Versed in quite some time. It's very easy for your brain to make those kind of mistakes. I mean, we make those mistakes in our day-to-day lives, you know, yes, you can try to tell people to pay attention. And in fact, that's actually one of the things that the prosecutor said that she needed to pay attention, but really to rely on systems that are single points of failure where one person can make a mistake. I mean, that's just a prescription for disaster. She made a mistake and a, and a, and a disastrous mistake, but wow. I mean, you know, we, we have to have the systems to prevent this kind of stuff from happening, you know? 
Yeah, the way I think about it, it's almost like, and I'm not, again, making a silly analogy far from it. It's like the, the two keys that need to be turned on the nuclear submarine, right, to <laughs> avoid an accidental launch. Like, seriously, when you're dealing with drugs of this gravity, it's almost like you need that that second person. And, and, and you're right. The, the systems are supposed to protect us. What I understand was happening, and you may have read this too, JL, was that she was mm-hmm. necessarily needing to override the system, meeting this sort of electronic medication cabinet that she was getting the drugs out of. She was needing to override that to get the agent out in a timely fashion. That's another place I'd interject. It is very easy to Monday morning quarterback in this scenario. But remember, delays can be harmful too. And you and I can both picture in our mind what was happening here. This patient's being called down to the scan. It is unlikely she's going to tolerate the scan without being calmer. Mm -hmm. And hence this sort of haste to, okay, get the drug that starts with a V. And of course, again, it was disastrously the wrong drug. But I think what frightens us and frightens almost anybody in healthcare, including nurses, is just how easily we can put ourselves at least in the shoes of the nurse to the point of feeling that pressure and feeling that time urgency and not always having all the checks and balances that we would hope for. Yeah. And, and, and in fact, I did some reading about this. And apparently at the time of this mistake, uh, at this medical error, we'll talk more about that in a second. At Vanderbilt, they had had problems with integrating their electronic medical record. We talked about that yes. in the past and connecting to the medication cabinets where the medication comes out of. And what was happening is that people just to get their job done, they often had to override these alerts. And uh, I don't know if you've ever watched the show like Airplane Disasters or any, you know, there's a whole genre of like disasters disaster shows on TV, like uh, reality TV, in almost every situation, like these disasters are often preceded by somebody overriding a warning. And, you know, there's this yes. notion, like people people get warning fatigue. Like if you hear, you know, a bell going off a, a million times, you know, you may ignore it 999, whatever number of times, but there's one time you really need to pay attention, but because you've been desensitized, you, you, you miss it, you know? So I think, it, again, it's it's so much more than this this nurse, you know? Yeah, it's the boy who cried wolf, right? Like at some yeah. point you're mm-hmm. going to get, like you said, desensitized. And there's some calibration that has to happen here between what is the right amount of electronic vigilance? Like how much should the machines actually be able to intervene and cause us to stop when it's appropriate? And, you know, JL, you and I have also made fun of the electronic medical record, like you said. I would say the, the one huge argument in its favor is safety around prescribing. Like doctor's Mm -hmm. handwriting is a joke, right? Like I'll admit, (laughs) I have terrible, terrible handwriting. And I actually vividly Uh remember, maybe this happened to you. When I was doing residency training, like in orientation, they brought out this incredibly nervous looking lawyer. I mean, the guy was like Uh sweating bullets. And he's like, listen, guys, when it's three in the morning and you're scrawling out some medication on the hospital floor, uh-huh. please, for the love of God, take the time to make it clear the difference between grams, milligrams, and <laughs> micrograms. Because, you know, there's oh, orders boy. of magnitude difference, right? And, and he even showed us on the screen, um, it was anonymized, but he had taken like an excerpt from, again, this hastily written out order. And it was actually very clear just how ambiguous it had been at the time. So the electronic systems here, I would argue, are largely a force for good. What you're getting at, though, is the counterbalance is they are not good if they are slowing us down so much that they are delaying timely care. Like you said, what was supposed to be happening 
is there's supposed to be this sort of beautiful harmony between the computer where the order was put in, Mm -hmm. the electronic cabinet that dispensed the medicine to the nurse, and then the final step is usually the patient has on their wrist a barcode that is scanned. And ideally, this is all supposed to synchronize. I'm told among nurses there's a a mantra about the five rights, Mm -hmm. right drug, right dose, right patient, right route, and right time. And I think that last Mm -hmm. one actually is the one where you feel the pressure. Like this person needs this medicine for whatever reason. And that's where I think when that haste starts to get in there, that's where things start to slip a little bit. And that's where you sort of get this tension between man and machine. Yep. And look, I'll do you one better. You know, I finished my residency sort of right before the dawn of electronic medical records uh, at New York Presbyterian Hospital. And I distinctly remember that they brought in a penmanship coach. I'm not kidding you when I say this, right? Somebody who literally came in to tell a bunch of doctors who are totally sleep deprived, getting crushed in their residency, writing illegibly because they're trying to write fast so they can get a get a decent night's sleep and telling us, okay, well, you need to be more careful. You need to be more thorough. We, we, we were laughing at this thing. We were like, are you kidding? Right. Right. Yeah. Let me, let me just bust out my calligraphy here, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. So um, I think we've established sort of what's happened um, and what happened in this case and sort of how we got here. We'll go to break now. And then when we come back uh, from the break, we'll talk a little bit more about medical errors and uh, some of the stuff that happened afterwards. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. All right. So I think a a good way to start uh, again is to break down the question of what is a medical error. So, you know, a medical error is, I think, pretty simply defined. It's a preventable adverse impact of care. So what we like to call iatrogenic, again, one of this, uh, one of these Greek terms that we learn along the way, iatro, the healer, and genic caused by, so caused by the healer, iatrogenic. And examples of medical errors are wrong diagnoses um, and getting the wrong medication. And I love, Mark, the the five rights that you talk about, because you can have a medical error with every single one of those rights. There is this common saying that sort of wormed its way into the popular consciousness that medical errors are the third leading cause of death. Uh, it actually comes from a 2000, uh, year 2000 report from the Institute of Medicine that concluded that 44,000 to 98,000 people per year were dying because of medical errors. I remember this distinctly because 2000 was the yeah. last year of my residency. And over the years, it's been studied and people view it as a very controversial study these days because there were questions about the appropriateness of the extrapolation that they made. Uh, There was questions about the causality. Were medical errors actually leading to deaths or were medical errors happening at the same time as that patients were going to die anyway? Again, we, we, we hear this all the time. And my question to you, Mark, is like, are we really killing that many people out there? Are doctors and nurses and hospitals really the third cause of death in the United States? What's your guess? 
Oh, well, I got to tell you, I mean, I'm so glad you're going back to that primary source because that that report in 2000 has been repeated so much that regardless mm-hmm. of how well done that study was, it is now like mm-hmm. repeated as if it's the gospel truth. And I don't think a lot of people actually go back and look at the methods. It looked at several hospitals in a few states. It wasn't Big Brother looking at every hospital in the U.S., during the period of of the study. So there was a lot Mm -hmm. of extrapolation there. And then, listen, I got to tell you, yes, medical errors happen. And I'm glad you spelled out the word iatrogenic jail because every single medical student learns that word. We all learn this Greek derivation that means us doing harm. That's our first ethical principle is do no harm. And yet we know we do it. And believe me, as an oncologist, I am very sensitive to this issue. So some of my peers, I think this is really interesting, some of my medical oncology peers describe the prescription of chemotherapy as our version of surgery. Not because of the invasiveness, but because mm-hmm. it's so high risk and yep. it requires incredible attention to detail, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't have the manual dexterity of a surgeon, but I certainly have the potential to greatly harm my patient if I am not super cautious about prescribing these, you know, notoriously toxic drugs. And I'll also tell you this, I benefit from a ton of oversight. Once I write an order, there are at least two other professionals who look at it. The nurse who's administering the medicine and Mm -hmm. the dispensing pharmacist. So I know, I know there are these layers of protection that are protecting my patients if, heaven forbid, I do uh, slip up. And so I, I think we're, we're caught in this tension, especially in this case, between acknowledging that, yes, mistakes happen, but not assigning criminal neglect or malicious intent when they do happen. Absolutely. I, and, and look, I mean, I distinctly remember seeing medical errors throughout my training, um, have seen people make mistakes, fortunately never saw any really, really big consequences from that, but it, it definitely happened. And we're going to talk a little bit about how we approach that from the standpoint of the medical culture. But it is human nature. You, you've seen these cases where somebody sues a hospital because they left a sponge in them, right? And mm-hmm. you scrubbed in for surgery when you're a medical student. There's like yeah. the attending physician, there's the residents, there's the charge nurse. There's like, you know, all these different people. You got five, six, seven brilliant people in the room and they leave a sponge in somebody's chest, you know? And uh, again, like we, we are human and I think we try the best that we can. And if people make mistakes, I think the key thing is to step back and ask yourself what's going on with the system here, you know, as opposed to, you know, sort of pointing your finger at one person and, and blaming them for everything. And let me interject there, Jill, because just in the model you describe, it used to be everyone deferred to the surgeon in the OR. Mm-hmm. They were the yep. captain of the ship. They were like God. No one in the moment would dare question their technical judgment. And yet, like you said, things were getting left behind. So now it is actually standard practice to do mm-hmm. an instrument count. So that is an example where the culture of medicine has shifted away from it's all on one person and no one else, and really acknowledging that, hey, even the most technically gifted, brilliant surgeon can forget a sponge. And, and that's why those things have become part of the procedure. And again, that, that shares responsibility does not put it all on the shoulders of one fallible person. 
Absolutely. And going to back to my airline disaster shows, like a, a many an episode has been caused because the, the pilot or the captain, I can't remember, the first char- officer in charge doesn't listen to the other people in the cockpit and then flies the plane into a mountain or something. So it's fascinating. You know, there's been this whole uh, change in how uh, the cockpits of airplanes are run. I think it's called uh, resource management or human resource management. I can't remember the, the, the scientific uh, yeah. uh, principles that they use, but they've started to extend those into the operating room because they've observed that very similar actions are happening in the OR that are happening in the cockpit that are sometimes yeah. leading to bad bad results. Yeah, like you, I've heard these parallels to aviation safety and how medicine mm-hmm. should be more like aviation. And interestingly, just back to the surgeon analogy, I can't remember the exact you know horrible plane crash, but I seem to recall it was, uh, I think, Korea Air. And they mm-hmm. ultimately did a root cause analysis saying that the, the flight crew was too deferential to the pilot yep. and and wasn't speaking up and saying, oh boy, you're making the wrong decision. You know, I think they were flying instruments only and they were misinterpreting the altimeter or something like that. But, but again, this notion that it's okay to speak up uh, if you think as part of a team that one of your colleagues is making an error. And again, this goes back to spreading out responsibility, checks and balances, having more than one person making the critical decision. Got it. Okay. So, The medication, wrong medication has been given, and this is definitely an error and really a bad one at that. So let's paint a scene for the audience in terms of what's happening there. So you have a patient who is in a scanner, maybe she's in an MRI, so it's literally like a coffin. If it's a CT, maybe it's more uh, open around her, uh, and she is by herself down there with maybe an X-ray or a CT tech or whatever. Uh, The patient gets the wrong medication, goes into cardiac arrest in the scanner. That cardiac arrest may or may not have been obvious. they pull her out of the scanner, try to wake her up and realizes that this lady's not waking up, that she doesn't have a pulse even. And then they call the arrest stat. At Columbia, we used to call it the arrest stat. You hear it overhead. I think it's jarring mm-hmm. for patients or for people listening. So I think they may have changed it. What, what's the arrest call at uh, Intermountain? Code blue. Um, and, Code blue, okay. You know, and, and, and you're right. You run the risk of you know terrifying everyone in the building, but also you really need all the healthcare professionals to perk up. And, and pay attention. And we have dedicated teams who then literally run to wherever that location is, you know, on our on our campus. And, and you're right, JL, we don't entirely know what happened here, but reconstructing it, when you go into one of these scanners, you're typically supposed to be still. So what you're getting at is there's this added sort of delay here, maybe of recognition, where if this poor woman was immobile because of the paralytic, they may have thought she was immobile because she was being told to be still yep. for the scan. So mm-hmm. I think that yeah. just compounded the mistake. And really what we're doing is layering on these circumstances uh, around the error. It is not just it's not just that the wrong medicine was given it. You have to factor in everything else that's happening to and around the patient. And, and again, Mark, for the, for the audience, I mean, it must have been mayhem in that room. I mean, there must have been a half oh. dozen, dozen people in that room trying yes. to save this lady, doing, you know, chest compressions, you know, shocking her with paddles, uh, giving her medications to uh, to reverse the vecuronium when they realized what was going on. I mean, I mean, mm-hmm. it must have been nuts there, man. Oh, yeah. You, yeah. Anyone anyone that's trained, done residency, been on a, what we call a code team, you know, one of these sort of rapid response squads. You're right. I mean, it's just it's pure adrenaline. Even there, you're, you're trying to coordinate your activity. Typically, there's a 
someone has been appointed to, to run the code team and you're kind of supposed to be the voice of common order in this frenzy. But you're right. In, in that moment, I mean, you are really just trying your best in the acuity of it to reverse whatever mistake might have might have led to this poor woman's death. Sure. And, and a little side note. So as a, as a resident, when we were in the CCU uh, and you were on call, you were responsible for carrying the, the code box. It was basically the box that allowed you to, to shock the, the patient. And that box weighed like 20 pounds, 30 pounds. Mm. I, it was very heavy. And as you may remember, I was a track athlete in college. I was a 200, 400 guy. And I used to try to beat everybody to the code <laughs> with, the, with the box. <laughs> so you'd see me like sprinting down the hallway uh, and you hear the arrest stat going overhead. And I'm, I'm I'm running like, uh, you know, I'm still in college. <laughs> I love it, man. I, 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 and so it was CCU, is that you guys called your, is that the cardiac care unit? That was our cardiac care unit. And that was typically gotcha. the unit that was responsible, the resident who was on call, a second year resident was responsible for, uh, for responding to arrests uh, in the hospital. Got it, got it. All right. So this person arrests, she actually, they were able to resuscitate her, but basically it is that she, eventually was found to be brain dead, um, which happens if you're not breathing for many minutes. And then she eventually died in the hospital a little bit after Christmas. And what's horrible about this case is that the hospital doesn't report it because uh, they're supposed to. They don't mention, they report the death, but they don't mention the medication error. The medical examiner doesn't initially investigate. Vanderbilt doesn't report to the state or to the feds or the joint commission. And then what's really terrible here is 2018. So, you know, a couple months after the patient dies, Vanderbilt secretly negotiates an out-of-court settlement with the family that has a gag clause in it that the family can't talk about the case. And this only goes public because in a anonymous tipster reports the error. And then late in 2018, CMS, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, literally raids Vanderbilt. It's like almost like a sting. And they confirm that it was a medication error and that it wasn't reported. So, I mean, we got to step back and we got to talk a little bit here about the culture of secrecy in hospitals, the culture of secrecy in medicine. I mean, how have you experienced it, Mark? Well, you know that phrase, the cover-up's worse than the crime. Um, oh, I mean, yes. Obviously, nothing was going to bring this poor lady back. But, you know, what is so disheartening here is I think medicine thrives on disclosure. Um, mm-hmm. And what's interesting is, you know, we talked earlier about, you know, these electronic systems. But ultimately, a, a lot of these near misses come to light because the people involved whether it's the prescribing physician or the dispensing nurse or pharmacist, admit, oh my gosh, like we nearly got that wrong. Mm-hmm. And then that can be looked at and that can be fixed and then hopefully not repeated. But this is the opposite. This is like complete, you know, I'm, I'm you, know, you literally mentioned like an NDA, like a non-disclosure agreement. This is burying things under veils of secrecy. And, and I'll be honest, it just makes the whole thing look worse it feels, gosh, ethically so murky what happened here. This was kind of buried in this case. And it makes you wonder if that wasn't preventing an opportunity for repairing that system. Absolutely. And uh, again, I, I come from a world where I believe that transparency is critical, certainly in yep. in the addiction world, like we try to be as open and honest as we can. I think in many ways, like the only way you learn to do things better is by being humble and by accepting that you're not perfect and that you make mistakes. And how do those mistakes happen and how do you fix them? You know, yeah. I will say, though, and I, I don't know if you've had any friends who've been sued. I've had a, I've had two friends, two f- physician friends who've been sued. And I, 
to be honest with you, I mean, the both cases in which they were sued, I, I know the details of the case, like they really wasn't their fault in either case. And both of them have been so scarred by that experience. It has literally fundamentally changed how they work as doctors because they got sued. There's a malpractice case. One of those, in both cases, actually, those cases are still open. They haven't been decided yet. And I have to say that to some extent, like this malpractice exposure that doctors have really is a break to being open and honest or, you know, a, a, a counterbalance to being open and honest. Do you find that as well, Mark? I, I, I do. And I've had friends, again, I, I won't, you know, acknowledge exactly their identities here who have, like your friends, been been sued. And it's horrible. Like, even when, you know, all the facts are brought to light and it's clear they did nothing truly negligent, they're they're scarred by it. And and what you worry about, especially with this case, is this going to create up a, a feedback loop where if, you know, especially nurses, but other healthcare professionals are worried about criminal charges is that mm-hmm. going to make them less likely to self-disclose? Because I think one common misconception is, you know, when someone is sued for malpractice, it doesn't just mean they made a mistake. It, it's more than that. You know, it's typically a, a dereliction of duty. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, I'm, I'm no lawyer. And I know that the nuances here really do matter, but there has to be a duty that you vacated. That uh, vacancy has to have directly caused the damage to the patient. So it's not just, oh, someone made a mistake. It's all these different layers and sort of the the sequence. And again, the circumstance in which they occurred. And what I'm worried about, honestly, JL, I think that the big reverberations of this particular case and why the nursing community in particular is worried is now I think they feel like they are less likely, uh, they're certainly less incentivized to speak up when they see mistakes and when those mistakes appear to be systematic and are likely to be repeated elsewhere in a hospital. Absolutely. And we'll, and we'll talk about the ram, ramifications and sort of our projections for the future in a minute. Uh, but it is important to understand that while there is this culture of secrecy that is so driven by fear of legal consequences, there has been some innovation in the space. The University of Michigan, their medical system, realized that this was a problem. And starting in 2004, they came up with this whole framework for responding to medical errors and other situations where they're actually open and honest about Mm. what happened. Uh, They will often admit mistakes. They will apologize to patients. They will make financial restitution to them. And one of the fascinating things that's come out of that is that their new system, um, or I guess it's almost 20 years old now, has resulted in much fewer medical malpractice suits. And I also have to imagine that the quality of care at Michigan has gotten a lot better because they're not burying details. They're discovering every potential use case where bad things have happened or bad things could have happened. And they are actively changing the system to make sure that those things don't don't happen again. So again, I'm a big believer in transparency and openness. And I really do hope that as a profession, because it's not just doctors, right? It's nurses, it's PTs, it's all the people who take care of patients who are exposed in this way. Uh, You know, I really do hope that we can move to a more open system of dealing with these problems. It really engenders trust, right? Like we talked about before, like you're so vulnerable as a patient, particularly a patient in the hospital, I mean, you're lying there in a gown in a bed that's not your own. It's very intrusive. There's people around you all the time. And you just really have trust and faith um, that they are going to treat you to the best of your ability. And I think what I love about the Michigan system is I think that that does a lot to foster that. And like you said, it's it's more open and it's much less about concealment. 
So uh, this case proceeds. Uh, you know, CMS, uh, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, comes in. They threaten to cut off Vanderbilt's Medicare payments. And for Ooh. people who don't know, like Medicare is the lifeblood or one of the lifebloods of a hospital's revenue. If you lose your Medicare, you're basically out of business. So Vanderbilt responds with a secret correction plan that they never mentioned to anybody. Redonda Vaught is arrested in 2019 and is identified publicly. And what's so crazy about this is that the family has publicly said that they forgive her. Oh, wow. That they don't hold her responsible responsible for what happened, and again, what's what's also crazy here is that the Vanderbilt CEO admits that they did the wrong thing, admits that they didn't report the medication error, and there's been no disciplinary no disciplinary actions against Vanderbilt at all. And again, I mean, it, it, it's hard not to feel like this is a cover up, and you know they've singled out this poor nurse for the failings of the institution. Yeah. You know, you hear that phrase, institutions don't love you back. I mean, that that's one thing to feel like, you know, you're fungible and you could be replaced. It's completely another to feel like this institutional failure is entirely being placed on your name. And now you are not, not just suffering professionally, but potentially, you know, being labeled a criminal for an error that took place, let's be honest, in the context of a flawed system. I think that's the other part is sort of all of the blame here being concentrated on a single person who now has the farthest thing from anonymity. Her name is is known to all of us. Yes. All right. So um, she gets charged. She's actually stripped of her license by the Tennessee Board of Nursing. They indict her for uh, the charges that I mentioned before. And then she is found guilty on March 25th. And as I said, uh, she's uh, as of the time of war recording, she's waiting on being sentenced, but could face up to uh, six years in prison. And you know, I, I really spent a, quite a bit of time reading into this. And I mean, they interviewed her actually in the courthouse before they read the verdict. She was so contrite and yeah. she totally took responsibility for her mistake. And I mean, you just feel so badly for her because I'll, I'll read you what the prosecution said. The prosecution said this wasn't an accident or mistake as it's been claimed. There were multiple chances for Redonda Vaught to just pay attention. Think about that, man. Like if, if she had paid attention, this wouldn't have happened. Again, it, I know to the the audience listening to this, especially if they're not medical, it may seem like we are completely abdicating all responsibility for all the things that we do on a daily basis. But, you know, I, one thing I've heard, JL, is, you know, sort of the enumeration of the number of choices we do make on a daily basis as, as healthcare professionals numbers in the hundreds. And I can I can promise you I am not given the opportunity for complete undisturbed focus on all of those decisions. In fact, when I'm not po- one of the reasons I love podcasting with you is it's my hour of the week where I don't have about <laughs> six different devices. Oh my god, that are going off and diverting diverting my flow. Like and it's no one's fault, but I have to pay attention to all these different information streams. And so what I'm getting is that divides does not unify divides our attention. Um, and, and I just feel like this prosecutor so unfairly portrays her as, oh, if she was just a little bit more vigilant, if she was just a little bit more caffeinated, because, you know, no healthcare professional is ever coming to work, I don't think, in an entirely rested state. You know, it just is it, so unfair to her. Again, this in no way, I know, brings back this poor woman. Uh, it's interesting, as you said, also that her family has shown some grace to this nurse. And, and said that, you know, there's a degree of forgiveness there. And I think there's a forgiveness there that the system is not showing her. 
Yeah. And, and, and I'm quoting Redonda Vaught here. She said, I know the reason this patient is no longer here is because of me. Uh, Vaught told the nursing board, starting to cry. There won't ever be a day that goes by that I don't think about what I did. So, I mean, Mark, you and I know what it's like to lose a patient that we did everything right for, right? I mean, can you imagine the crushing burden of knowing that you led to the death of a person? I mean, I, I don't know if people understand like how, how difficult that is. You know, this this really strikes me as someone that understands the weight of their actions. And I'll be honest with you, man, I was at a patient's funeral, my patient's funeral last week. I was sitting there surrounded by this patient's loved ones thinking, is there anything else I could have done? Like if I had made a different decision, if I had read a different study, prescribed a different drug, would this person be alive longer and would we not all be convened here? And I did that knowing a good conscience that I did everything within my power. So I can only imagine the, the crushing burden that Ms. Vaught now carries, whether or not she uh, was or is criminally penalized. And, you know, let's think about, let's project out, you know, what, what are the, the future ramifications of this? I mean, I'm not a healthcare lawyer, but I think that this is one of the most significant healthcare cases probably during our, our working lives, you know? And I think that this is going to affect every hospital, every profession, every environment, because people are going to say like, wow, a medical error can land you in prison, can make you a convicted felon. So I really think that this is going to have the opposite of the intended effect. I don't think doctors are going to pay any more attention or nurses are going to pay any more attention because they were already doing the best that they could. I think what's going to happen now is people are going to increasingly hide and bury mistakes rather than learning from them. What do you think? Yeah, I actually have a lot of friends who went into law school and you know were studying for the bar and had to learn all of these cases that established precedent. And I am extremely worried that this is to your point, setting a dangerous precedent. I think self-reporting is a crucial way to course correct in medicine. I am worried that attaching a criminal conviction to an honest mistake penalizes the act of disclosure. And again, I, I, I agree with you. I think this is going to have the opposite of its intended effect. And it's not bringing this poor woman back. And maybe one last point here, like at your institution, Mark, you know, I, I run a, a private practice. So, you know, I, if we notice an error, it's it's up to me to fix it. But how do you guys approach it as an organization? You know, you have the morbidity and mortality rounds. You have those kinds of settings. But how do you guys deal with a situation where there's been an error, people notice it, and, and there's t a change needs to be made? How do you guys approach it at Intermountain? I'll give you a very concrete example. I'm actually the head of the oncology department at my hospital. Okay. And so all basically potential medication errors come to me for oversight. Mm -hmm. And you're right. This is not designed for me to be too judgmental or punitive. But basically, I reach out to whoever I think committed the error and we remediate them. And again, it's not designed to be a slap in the wrist or just purely disciplinary, it's designed to prevent it from happening again. And it really only happens if someone speaks up, either the person who made the mistake in the first place or the person who caught it. And then, like you said earlier, patients and their families are actually less likely to sue, this is the Michigan model, if you're disclosing upfront rather than trying to conceal a mistake. And I think that goes back to the fact that trust is crucial in healthcare. We can't do anything to help our patients if they don't trust us first. And the thing that I'd say is, you know, as you know, I'm, I'm, I'm building 
a, an addiction recovery management service. And we have, a, we, they have so many moving parts to treating somebody who is recovering from addiction. You know, there's the part of me that's the doctor, but there's also the part of me that's the engineer and the system builder. And what I always say is that there's no system that's well-designed that can fail because one person forgot to do their job, right? You know, the airplane doesn't fall out of the air because the pilot forgot to check the gas tank. So we've got to develop good systems. And, and again, I, I just feel so badly for this woman. I hope things work out for her in her sentencing. I hope she maybe gets a chance to appeal it. Uh, it, It's so much more than one individual person, especially that person who's trying everything that she can to do the right thing. Yeah. And I think we want people to understand that delivering healthcare is very complicated endeavor that happens in a complicated system with lots of moving parts. Well-designed hospital systems have good measures in place, but not every hospital is at advanced and not every hospital is perfect. So as always, we want people to feel comfortable, to feel empowered, to advocate for themselves. And we have some questions that you can potentially ask when you're in the hospital. Yeah, again, we want to puncture this awful label of the, the difficult patient. You are not being difficult if you speak up for yourself. So make sure they confirm your identity. Again, it's very common. You'll be issued a wristband that has a barcode on it. That's one level. It's okay to ask what medicine am I getting and why, who prescribed it. And if it's surgery, it is actually okay to confirm the correct body part. And, and this is the farthest thing from amusing. There have been cases of the wrong limb, say, being operated on. So it, you are not being annoying. You are speaking up and you're actually reducing the likelihood of error. And, you know, I, I think this whole notion of, again, patients having to defer to us is unsafe uh, if it's not acknowledging that we're, you know, we're also fallible. Yeah. And I have a friend from a, a prior job uh, who was very intelligent and was very, very anxious about having surgery on her left knee. I think she was having an ACL uh, repaired. So she literally drew on her left leg. So this is a hack we can share with the audience. <laughs> she said, operate here. Is She drew a marker on her left leg. <laughs> X and marks then, the spot. X marks the spot. And then on the right knee, she, she literally wrote, do not operate here. And, uh, you know, I thought it was a cool way for her to to have agency there and to communicate to the physicians and be her own double check there to make sure that uh, the wrong thing didn't happen. So maybe a little healthcare hack that people can use in the future. I love it. Okay, so as always, uh, in closing, we want to thank you for listening. We'd love to hear from you. You can always email us at isitserious at offscript.com and script without a T or call us at Offscript Health and leave a message. We just might use your question on our show. Our number is 855-AUDIO66 and that's 855-283-4666. You can also find us on social media. My Twitter handle is at Mark Lewis MD. And my Twitter handle is at Jean-Luc Neptune. And I'm also active on LinkedIn. And please remember that while we love talking about medicine and healthcare, this show does not provide professional medical advice. If you have any questions, make sure you ask your provider. So take care, everybody. And please join us next time for Is It Serious? That's all for now. If you like this show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all of your friends to listen. Do you have a medical question or concern? Ask us by leaving a message at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-283-4666. Or you can email us at isitserious at offscript.com. And we might just use your question in a future show. Is It Serious is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. 
Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producers are Joey Brenneman and Ariel Nachman. Our hosts are Dr. Jean-Luc Neptune and Dr. Mark Lewis. Our researcher is Emma Gomez and our sound mixer is Kyle Moore. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com.